welcome back, everyone, to another episode. I'm joined today by Dr. Marvin Berman, and I genuinely couldn't be more excited. Um, we've known each other for several years now. He's the founder and director of the Quiet Mind Foundation. He is uh, has a PhD in what is it uh, from Temple University in psychoeducational processes. He has more experience and certifications than we can go into right now, but. The thing, the things that perhaps make me most excited is just his uh, his wisdom in the field and the way that he brings a multimodal and philosophical approach to human optimization, wellness, and and also I think we'll hopefully have time to get into this today, but also neurodegenerative disease, which is one of the things we're collaborating on. So, thank you for being here, and thank you for your contributions to the field as a practitioner, but also in deeply furthering the research of the mind and body. So. Thanks, Micah. Happy to be here. Yeah. So as we were kind of warming up and talking, we were getting into this idea of flow and the body. And I'm, I'm curious to, for our listeners, they're a little versed in neurofeedback. They're a little versed in flow. But I'm curious to, when, when we look at the idea of human optimization, and, the, and obviously that might mean something for, different for someone with Alzheimer's than someone who's a professional hockey player. But True. what... What do you see any similarities between those two, or like how do you generally approach someone when they come to you saying like, "Hey, I just want to kind of live a well, better life"? You know, that's that's great because one of the things that I tend to end up saying to people is there are two reasons for you to be sitting in that chair across from me. One is that you're unhappy and you want to be happy, and the other is that you're happy and you want to be happier. <laughs> Either one of those is a legitimate reason for you to be sitting there, but let's clear up which one is it. Right. And, and then because when we're talking about the former, you know, then we're talking about therapy. We're talking about rehabilitation. We're talking about recovery. We're, you know, we're using words like that, uh, pain reduction. But when we're talking about Pat the the other, you know, and people want to be happier. Well, then we're talking about personal growth. Mm -hmm. I love that distinction. I, I'm sitting here. I'm thinking, wow, if our regulatory agency could hear that definition, that would actually clear up a lot of things for the distinction between a coach and a therapist. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And so when I work with therapists, you know, and they talk about, because I, I mean, I've done a fair amount of supervision with therapists over the years and body workers. Um, we talk about the distinction between people who come for body work and people who come for psychotherapy. Mm -hmm. And where does, where does that line, you know, where does the line cross between feeling good and dealing with your issues? Mm -hmm. And when people come to do body work or they come to do neurofeedback or any of these other techniques, you know, they may come just because they want to feel better and not that they're really trying to deal with some diagnosable psychological or psychiatric disorder, let alone a neurological or neurodegenerative condition. They just want to feel good. Well, that's a legitimate reason, but we really need to make that distinction clear, not only for the client but also for the provider, mm -hmm. you know, that a massage therapist is not doing, is not doing psychotherapy. hundred percent, but bringing you into a happier, more relaxed state, which is wonderful. And there's, as you know, right. It is therapeutic. therapeutic. 
right. 100%. And, okay. and, and with that, with that connection too, I think there's so much richness in the, you know, you could from the massage therapy or touch or kind of just our somatic cells hold so much wisdom to what our body needs. And I'm, and I'm curious what you've seen in that. Sure. So, yeah. I mean, your background in somatic experiencing comes out of the tradition that I was trained in, which is neo-Reikian psychodynamically oriented psychotherapy, which in the U.S. became something called bioenergetic analysis or core energetics. So Alexander Lowen was the guy who really started bioenergetic analysis, and it was through his collaboration with a guy named John Paracas who created core energetics. And out of that came most of what we call body-centered psychotherapy. Yeah. The other person who contributed for me in terms of my work significantly was Moshe Feldenkrais. Yeah. And so working with that understanding of the body and gravitation and learning and understanding from a psychodynamic point of view that was how I approached working with people until I hit the point where a guy that I was working with for five years said, you know, everything's really going well and I feel much better, but you know, sometimes things don't click. Mm-hmm. Right. Did I tell you this story? I know no? no, you have not. So, yeah. so the guy says, sometimes things don't click and he points his fingers to his temples. Mm-hmm. And I was like, because of the way I work, you know, I said, wait a minute, what you, what you just did with your hands, what's that, what's that in English? And he said, well, you know, I like uh, my brain. And I said, yeah, what about your brain? And he's like, well, you know, I read things and I have to read them three times to not understand what I just read. And sometimes the letters move around on the page. And I looked at him, kind of tilted my head and I was like, what, you got hit in the head? Yeah. And I said it like, you know, kind of sarcastic, you know, counter-transference 101. And he's like, what? You mean like a car accident? No, I never had a car accident. I was like, wait, wait, wait. That's not what I asked you. So let's be clear. Did you ever get hit in the head? And he sits back and goes, oh, well, you know, I mean, I fell down the basement steps when I was three. And Johnny hit me with a baseball bat when I was seven. And I ran into a brick wall on my bike. And I'm like, wait a minute. You're not neurotic. You're brain injured. Mm -hmm. Now what do I do? And it was like, all of a sudden, I hit a brick wall in terms of what my skill set was. Because this person clearly had an honest-to-God wiring issue. Yep. And, you know, that's not in the box called psychotherapy. So luckily, I was friends with Len Oakes, and he had been working with Harold Russell, and they had been working on neurofeedback for kids with ADHD. And so he said, oh, well, I've got this thing called blah, 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 neurofeedback. And I was like, what the hell is that? And the next thing I knew... You know, I'm now sitting in my office with a Windows 95 tower and these glasses and this other thing. And I'm like, what the hell? But he showed me how to do it. So I 
got the guy to come back and we did six or eight sessions of what's now called Lens. This was 1998. <laughs> yeah. But we did six or eight sessions of Lens and he was like, oh, okay. Well, okay, that's better. I don't have that. It's done. I'm like, what? He's like, yeah, whatever. That stuff, that's not happening anymore. I feel much better. I can read. I can remember. Everything's great. Bye. And I'm like, what? Okay. That was weird. But now I've got this tool. Like, okay, so now whenever anybody comes into therapy and they've got a head trauma history, I'll do this thing and it'll be okay. And I'll keep going in therapy. Then I had another woman come in and do the same thing. And she had a car accident. So I did it with her and she got better. But then, like two months later, both of them called me and said, you know, the weirdest thing happened. I just got back from my allergist and he took me off Theophylline and said, I don't have asthma anymore. Hmm. And I'm like, what? Why are you calling me? And they said, oh, it was that thing that you did with me. And I'm like, no, nah, that's not, it doesn't have anything to do with asthma. And they were like, no, no, there's, I didn't do anything else other than that. Mm-hmm. And now I don't have asthma. So that really started me off. I went back to Len and I went back and started realizing, oh, this thing that I just did with them is like the tip of the iceberg about what neurofeedback is. And then it all started going from there about quantitative EEG and neurofeedback and all of that stuff came next. So I was on the left fringe of the neurofeedback world and then had to get more toward the middle. Totally. So that's how it went. Well, and I'm too, and I know for some of our listeners, they've heard Dr. Tarrant talk about neuromeditation and Tiff Thompson talk about psychodynamic and and um, we've had a handful. Uh, we had a uh, Dr. Suter on talking about oh, you know, new minds approach. And so there might be kind of verse in that of like, oh, right, that makes sense to treat brainwave activity. And even I'm sitting here like, yeah, of course, like you, know, you may have some cortical slowing or you have some going on from this, you know, brain injury, or maybe there's some you know, something in the visual cortex with the dyslexia right. kind of thing, it sounds like. Right. But then I'm sitting here too. I'm like, okay, well, why would that, you know, if we're working directly on brain electrical activity, why would that impact? say, an inflammatory reaction or an asthma reaction or, you know, something else. Now we're starting to understand the vagal pathway that goes to the gut and also the chronic muscular impingements and neural impingements that may have been happening in the C1 and C2 in the upper cervical region that were creating tension that was then causing inflammation, and that whole cycle kept getting exacerbated. Sure. The other piece of this that luckily, because of where I live, you know, there's a huge medical healthcare community. And one of the people that was here was a guy named John Barnes, who developed something called myofascial release, MFR. And that's a very popular technique amongst people in physical therapy. And there's another guy, uh, Goodhart, called cranial sacral, mm-hmm. up ledger. And 
There's a guy here named Barry Gillespie who combined John Barnes's work with Upledger's work and came out with this idea about releasing myofascial strain in the brain, in the, in the skull, and the neck, and the shoulders, and the upper body. And he started doing this with infants, newborns, hmm. in, in the NICU and in the delivery room. So he was training NICU nurses and delivery folks to be able to assess the expansion and contraction in the, in the cranium in the baby and recognizing when there was an impingement or a constriction in the expansion and contraction in the brain, in the, in the cortical sutures. And so he started developing this thing called a brain score where you could actually count the number of seconds that were involved in the brain expanding and then contracting. And so he started working with the idea that the fascial strain, the fascial system in the extensors and the flexors needed to be reduced to its absolute minimum, never knowing that that was exactly the same concept that Feldenkrais was using in developing structural integration, and he called it utiny, which was the minimization of the activity in the flexor and extensor system when somebody's balanced in the field of gravity. So Barry started working on this idea of balancing the myofascial system using Upledger's techniques and John Barnes's techniques and got very, very important releases and started seeing that these kids who were having asthma and reflux and all this other stuff when they were born, it was completely going away as soon as their brain score started to increase. Hmm. What's that? Yeah, what's that work called, and how do we do it? <laughs> you know, especially with the six-month-old at home. I mean, but also, oh yeah, a Barry, in which we I can mean, do it yeah. as adults. Oh yeah, and so what yeah. happened is Barry started realizing that more and more this was something that was going on in everybody, and that it was persisting in into adulthood because the the fascial system is there forever, and if sure. you start yeah. to mess around with the fascial system. I mean, that's what Ida Rolf and those people recognized a long time ago and started intervening very directly using, you know, Rolfing. I'm, I'm not a big fan of Rolfing independent of psychotherapy and other interventions so that you help people understand what's being released. Because when people get Rolfed, a lot of stuff can come up. And if they don't have a way to really work that through, it, it creates another kind of problem. But with Barry's work, it's called the Gillespie approach. And Barry and I have been working together where I've been doing quantitative EEGs on his patients before they visit him because we only, we only work about a half an hour away from each other. So people will stop at my office, do a cue, go to Barry's office, work with him for a couple of days, and then come back and do another cue. And the, the differences are, are remarkable. And the, and the change in the people, the kids and the adults, is remarkable as well. So it's a, it's, a good, it's a good explication and a good demonstration of this idea that I've been talking to you about all along, about the isomorphy principle that we need to be looking at for, about expansion and contraction as a principle to look at systemically in people 
and that we can address and intervene at any level of the system around that idea of expansion and contraction. And that that's, that's how I approach working with people, you know, and how I can fit all the pieces together now because there is an understanding of what that expansion and contraction principle looks like neurophysiologically in the EEG. Mm-hmm. Do you want me to run that down? I mean, a little bit. I mean, my mind is just on fire right now with questions. And I think, all right, well, you know, the, I'm imagining too, for the listener who might not even know what isomorphia is or. Yeah, know. that's what I'm going to, that's what I was thinking. Yeah. So when in general systems theory, when you talk about something being isomorphic, it means that you can observe a particular principle at each level of abstraction from like the micro to the macro, you can see that same principle operating. So when something is isomorphic, it means that you can see that whatever it is <coughs> operating at that level of abstraction. All right. So when you talk about people having a neurosis, a psychological problem, disorder, what you're talking about is a restriction in their ability to fully express themselves in some way. And that full expression. When Freud talked about it, he talked about it as some kind of intrapsychic conflict. And when Reich, Wilhelm Reich, looked at that same idea psychoanalytically, he agreed with Freud that it was a conflict, but Reich talked about it in terms of a pattern of chronic muscular tension Hmm. and that there was a direct correlation between chronic patterns of muscular tension and intrapsychic conflict. And that's how the body and the mind can be worked with consistently, congruently from a psychodynamic or psychoanalytic perspective. That's what Reich's contribution to psychodynamic and psychotherapeutic practice was. Everything is built based on Reich's ideas of character, pathology, and character analysis. So this idea of character structure has to do with the way in which people bind their psychic, psychological, emotional trauma in the body. Somatic experiencing is another example of that. So here, what we're looking at when we talk about neurofeedback or neurophysiology, how does character pathology or character dynamics show up in the brain, in the way the brain works? So if we look at the pattern of dominant frequency activity in the EEG, right? You can see that people with different kinds of psychological issues have different patterns of EEG dominant frequency activity. And that the dimensions that you can look at that at are the range, the actual range of frequencies that show up in the dominant frequency and also the variability within that range. So that's what I've been talking to people about in terms of understanding character dynamics in the EEG. Beautiful. So with that in mind, we can then say, okay, we can look at character pathology, if you want to use that word, or character dynamics at the EEG level. You can also look at it in the, at the body level in terms of chronic patterns of tension and self-express and psychologically and functionally in terms of people's restrictions in terms of their ability to fully experience and express themselves 
whatever that might, however that might show up. So that's the model that I'm pitching. And the principle is basically about being able to discriminate between things that are similar and things that are different. And that's how we're organized on every level, is that capacity to discriminate between similarities and differences. And so one way to describe the arc of growth or the arc of increasing flow in that guy whose name is hard to pronounce, his idea, is that flow states can be operationally defined as states in which there is a higher level or a higher degree of capacity to more finely discriminate between similarities and differences or Mm. similarities in the apparently different and differences in the apparently similar. Do you have like a real life example of that maybe for like an executive or an athlete of how that might show up? Sure. So when the guy who got the gold medal for mogul jumping from Canada, you could see in his EEG, it's on the internet, it's on the internet. Somebody was doing neurofeedback with that person and they went from not being able to qualify to winning the gold in Can- from Canada in mogul jumping. And what they found was that they, you could see that the uh, coherence, the level of coherence in their brain improved significantly and went from being hypo and hypercoherent to being more normalized. So what, mm-hmm. what that represented for me was that the, the integration between left and right hemisphere was functioning more efficiently and that they were being able to make finer and finer discriminations in terms of their proprioceptive inputs. What was coming in at them as they were going down the, down the mountain, they were being able to make finer and finer discriminations about what was happening on their skis. I love it. And, and that, that made the difference for them at a completely you know, integrated level. I mean, it's not something you can actually think about. It's happening too fast. But their, but their capacity to make those discriminations had significantly improved to the point where they could discern much, much, much more quickly where their body weight and where their responses needed to be and stay balanced in the field of gravity so they didn't fall. Yeah. yeah I think you're on the neurofield listserv with me with Dale Schuster. Is that his last name? Schustman? I'm, I'm butchering it. I apologize. He did an episode with us a couple weeks ago talking about alternating nostril breath and how it integrates and balances or creates harmony between both hemispheres. And so I want to throw that out there as like a kind of a low tech way for people to maybe work on some of that. But I also am curious if you know, if you have any other ideas of like, well, Well, you know, we give people the V light. We've been working with V light for about five or six years and got them to start using quantitative EEG as an empirical way to, as an empirical way to show the impact of photobiomodulation. And they've made great strides in their, in their ability to do research and represent the value of the V-Light. 
And we work with people and consult with people all the time on how to best, how to optimize their use of the V light. And so people can always get in touch with me about getting a V light and how to use it more efficiently. But what we found is that if you alternate the nostril input uh, using the nasal applicator, that can also help to some degree. But I mean, you know, pranayama <laughs> as a technology is, uh, I think, just about 4,000 years old. Yeah. So it's not like people haven't been at this for a while. You know, we're not, we're not discovering anything new. The thing I always get cautious about with Westerners who start monkeying around with their respiration is that <clears throat> most people don't know how to breathe normally to begin with. And now you're going to start teaching them exotic breathing techniques. It's like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Can we back up here for a second? <laughs> let's, let's, get the normal, let's get the normal respiration thing sorted out. And then we can start, you know, mucking around with the 450 different kinds of pranayama techniques. Well, I, I love that. And it kind of comes back to the beginning of our conversation. The language I use for it is optimization versus stabilization. Yeah. And yeah. one of the, uh, I'm totally spacing on her name. I just ordered her book, but I've heard her on a couple of podcasts recently. She came out with a assessment called the breath IQ. Are you familiar with it? No. So it's So it's looking at the mobility and volume of breath. So looking at breath, not necessarily from like CO2 exchange or other measures, but literally... Right. You know, as you talked about the brain expanding and contracting exactly. the skull, <clears throat> same with our ribs. Our rib cage should have roughly two to three inches of expansion horizontally as opposed to, you know, raising ourselves vertically. Right. So there's a lot of just foundational mechanics. A lot of people are mouth breathing. There's some interesting thoughts about how mouth breathing versus nose breathing actually shifts your jaw and different oh, we can spend, there. We could spend a lot of time talking about breathing. <laughs> yeah. But, I mean, so that's... That's the first thing that I do with everybody because they come in because they want to do all this exotic, you know, EEG, blah, 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 neurofeedback. And I'm like, wait, 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 can we back up a second? How many mm -hmm. times do you breathe in a minute? Right. Yeah. And what happens when you breathe? Like what happens to your chest? What happens to your body? And, you know, just go, go through the basic mechanics of normal respiration. And... Could yeah. Nobody, I mean, almost nobody comes close to breathing normally. So yeah, what is, I think it's, talk, there, there's yeah. that significant shift at age five, I think, where we move from that deep belly breath, right? I wonder, do you have an idea of what might happen at that age? Because at least that's what I've been reading is that's when there tends to be this massive shift away from well, functional breath. Unfortunately, it has something to do with sitting in a chair and being told to sit still and look yeah. up front and, or, you know, there was all of that about going to school mm. and that, you know, you're not a baby anymore. So no crying, no carrying on, you know, you have to sit and be and mind the teacher. And there's all these constrictions and changes that take place, not to mention whatever other kinds of things are going on psychologically, you know, as a child matures in that, at that point in their life. But I mean, you know, there's all kinds of changes, but certainly going to school and yeah. being told to sit still doesn't help. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, yeah. And there's so many, especially when that's kind of when we're farming, forming some, you know, we're after that like childhood amnesia phase and a lot of those memories are getting encoded. I mean, I, I, as I'm sure you do as well, we know that we encode memories from being an infant or newborn, even in utero somatically. 
but you know, sure. that's maybe not as popular as a belief in the mainstream yet. But I, I'm well, curious if, is it more 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 so popular you think with like the epigenetic studies and all that or? The, the people who are studying epigenetics probably haven't read much of character analysis. Yeah. So the likelihood of them making the connections like Alan Shore did when he wrote, you know, affect regulation uh, and the disorders of the self. I mean, Alan Shore's work is probably some of the best and, and Dan Siegel in terms of connecting the dots between neurophysiology <clears throat> and biochemistry and psychodynamics. Mm-hmm. So there, there are people who are thinking along those lines now. And I'm certainly encouraging people to do that. And um, I'm, I've had a couple of back and forths on email with Alan Shore, and he's certainly aware of the split that happened in 1927 when Reich got kicked out of the Vienna Psychoanalytic Association. And part of it was because of his bioelectrical work showing that libido was not simply a concept, but a real bioelectrical phenomenon. Mm -hmm. And he also talked about infant sexuality in a way that, you know, early 20th century Vienna was not ready to listen to. Yeah. When I think about the evolutionary psychology perspective of one of the deeper emotions is actually sexual, right? Like one of the areas that can lead to pleasure pleasure yeah right so you can see the tremble you can see the tremble in the lips of an infant when they nurse mm-hmm. you can see that that trembling pleasurable ripple go through the body starting with the lips and the contact that the baby has you know at the breast is so critically important for all kinds of developmental stages not not to leave i mean least not least of all the idea of contact boundary and and focal distance that the the convergence distance for vision accurate acute visual acuity is 18 inches which is the distance between the mother's eyes the baby's eyes and the mother's eyes and when there are babies at the breast it's amazing I mean, that's that's it so recognizing all of those different connections is really important. And Feldenkrais really helped in terms of understanding how we need to be balanced in the field of gravity and this idea of optimal optimal functioning being directly correlated with a minimization of muscle activity between flexors and extensors. <clears throat> And that's what peak performance people are always trying to do. And every, you know, all of those people are trying to do the same thing. And executives are trying to do the same thing with neurofeedback and everything else. And that when we worked with lawyers at a big law firm doing neurofeedback, what they were interested in was the salience network mm-hmm. and optimizing their default mode and salience network activity so that they could pick out more of the relevant data from a mass of information which they were having to process and that's what lawyers do for a living what's the most relevant fact amidst this mountain of other facts yeah and have you found that 
you know, have you found that to be in a slower, more integrated state or the faster states? Oh, it always comes, it always comes back to the character, the character structure of the person and their dynamics and how, how are they relating to the material? How are they relating to their own body? How are they relating to what the task is and what are the conflicts and tension patterns that they have to work through? But more often than not, you know, it has to do with those chronic patterns in, in their body, the, com- the compensations that they developed in order to focus on whatever it was that was in front of them and manage their anxiety. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the things I, I like to try to do on the show is give people some actionables they can do at home. You know, obviously a great action would be checking out the Quiet Mind Foundation and reaching out to you, especially about, <laughs> you know, the Violet and, uh, sure, you know, sure. you, know, and, you and I do. obviously work together, but yeah. yeah. And we've been, we've been, we've been recommending that people, you know, especially given what's going on with the pandemic, that start considering doing neurofeedback training at home if they can't get to somebody's office and that you can do neurofeedback at home. And there are low cost ways of doing, you know, two channel and four channel training without having to spend a ton of money. Totally. Um, and we've been doing that for a bunch of years now with people. So that's another consideration for folks. But I certainly think that people practicing respiration training, uh, I didn't mention the free spirit. I should for mm-hmm. the free spirit is a protocol that you do for a month. You do it twice a day for 17 minutes. And in a month, you've renormalized your respiration pattern and you understand what it means to optimize CO2 and breaths per minute. And that when you do that, you get a much, much better optimization of your overall body's oxygenation and energy flow because you're getting your, your brain is finally getting the right amount of oxygen. It's what amazing, a concept. So is that available that. to the public now or is that still in the research? It, it is it is available. And uh, we've been working with those with Palo Alto Health Services now for a bunch of years. So we can offer people about a 50% cost reduction if they'll do a QEEG before they start using the free spira and then when they're done. And um, you know, if they come to the office in, in Elkins Park. You know, we'll do the QEGs for nothing, but if they're out in the world, we'll make arrangements with people to do just the QEG acquisition, which usually doesn't cost more than 150 bucks or so. So it's a way to get a really good brain mapping and also respiration training experience for not a lot of money. Yeah, well, and just to people listening, that is something we can offer to for you guys here in Colorado and. Um, the free sphere stuff I've been following for maybe two or three years now. It's pretty, yeah, it's excellent. Quite, it's quite intriguing. The, the, for panic, att- panic disorder, I think was the initial research yeah. they did. And now they're and, working on PTSD and just for the people in Pennsylvania and maybe some other places, Highmark Blue Cross has approved free Spira for reimbursement. Beautiful which is the first biofeedback technology to be approved for reimbursement by insurance 
for a psychiatric diagnosis. It's a first. So Highmark Blue Cross is doing that, and Allegheny Blue Cross is doing that out in Pittsburgh. Gotcha. Awesome. Well, and I think, you know, what's the, there was a, what's the breath work that you mentioned several times, not maybe on this show, but in the past with me, there's a, a style of breath work you really like. Oh, I, I mean, really bioenergetics and the work that happens in bioenergetic therapy really is the kind of breath work that I tend to approve of and, and support because it's really about achieving what really is normal respiration. I think what you and I talked about was when I start working with people, you know, I'll have them put one hand on my belly button and the other hand on my, on my, the back of my, on my back. And then I'll say, okay, now what happens to your hands when you feel me breathing? And they say, oh, they get pushed away from each other. And I say, now do that to yourself. And they go, oh, only my front, only my hand and my belly is moving. My back's not moving. And I have them go back and touch me again. And I say, okay, so feel what's happening. And they say, oh, yeah, I can feel both hands moving. And I say, so you know what that exotic breathing technique is called, right? And they go, no. I say, normal respiration. <laughs> and so it so, becomes, you know, it, it's, it's something to impress on people that this is not some exotic technique. This is how we started out. So when you look at a baby, when you looked at your own baby when they were born on the changing table, right, when they're there and they have no clothes on, and you look at them, what's moving? Just about everything. Breathing, what's moving? Yeah. Everything. Yeah. Right. So that's So do you, that's for, for, for those of us that hear that as exotic and maybe, you know, I just did that as you were talking, I imagine some of our other listeners who hopefully aren't driving or riding a bike did as, try that as well. And I, I try that. this at home, folks. Yeah. And I, you know, and I'm, I'm someone who's been doing the Wim Hof breathing and working on like long, several minute breath holds and right. still I'm, I'm having that foundational function that exactly. my foundational functional breath is not what it should be. I've been working on getting my ribs to expand for several months now. So there's more movement, but not as right. much as I'd like. Right. Do you and have any tips on how to do that? Right. The tension in your intercostal muscles is significant. And if you have somebody stick their thumb in your intercostals to try and release that tension, you're going to want to hit them, okay? Because yeah. it's going gonna, it's gonna to hurt like hell. The pain, the, the, the pain in there, you know, when you start releasing that that way is extremely painful. So better to start doing it from the inside out rather than having somebody stick their thumb in your ribs. I mean, but, both are both are helpful, but that's why I like the Feldenkrais approach and you know, the gentler, kinder, gentler approaches. But at some point, you really do have to mobilize those those areas, and those areas have been under chronic tension, maybe since you were an infant. Mm-hmm. So, you know, go at it slowly, but definitely go at it. You know, because I know about. It. Half the listeners are like, all right, cool. I'm going to go find a rolfer. I'm going to go find a yeah, yeah, release on. person. Get, get just, real, you know. get real folks. I, I, yeah. that is not the recommendation from the, from this podcast. You know, you got to go <laughs> at this one step at a time. I mean, I'll be happy to talk to people on the phone 
you know, on a consulting basis, I do that a lot, but you really got to go at this one step at a time. And um, certainly just getting people to breathe through their nose, right? And one of the other things that, yeah, one of the other things is that if you remember that the baby, the entire body, the entire baby's body is moving when they breathe. Well, one of the things that's happening is that your spine is expanding. So one of the things that's supposed to happen is that when you get to the top of your inhale, your chin is supposed to lift. But not because you pick your chin up. It's because you've expanded your bottom ribs and your rib cage is expanded up and that, that forces your muscles, the, the collarbone, to expand and that lifts your chin up on inhale and then your chin drops on exhale. And it's all happening at C1, right where the mm. top vertebra and your, your skull meet, right? But all of that's supposed to happen involuntarily. This takes a lot of it, it takes a lot of letting go in order to be able to feel that proprioceptively and interoceptively. To be able to get that without effort is the whole point. But in order to do it without effort, you've got to do it out of gravity to begin with and then work your way into gravity. Because mm-hmm. as soon as you get into gravity, other other patterns are going to take over just to keep you up in the air. And that's going to block. That's going to block the more subtle movement that's needed in order to get that full respiratory wave to take place. Hmm. That's why Reich and all those people in the early, you know, Reichian tradition always focused on getting people breathing first and getting their head and their neck and their eyes mobilized before they got down to working on the pelvis, because. You want to work from the least, the least traumatized area to the most, is the way they would put it. Gotcha. Well, and you know, I think this really illustrates that consistency, which is a huge principle in all the flow training and anything we do. Is that hey, you know, there's slowing down, being present. You know, I'm currently right. in the process of. I just wrote an eight week program for myself to kind of reset my nervous system around a couple of reactivities and. Mm-hmm you know, a lot of it is just coming back to slowing down and hitting that pressure release valve and trusting that the body actually has the wisdom. If it's given, a, you know, if you're, if you kind of learn how to ask a good question or learn how to hear the answer. Right. So asking good questions is definitely the way to go. Yeah. Well, awesome. Any pieces in closing or what's the best way for people to get a hold of you? Or? Well, I, I think we, I think we just covered what about five years of psychotherapy and, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So everyone's healed. Congratulations. We're done. <laughs> right. Thank you very much. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I think the best way to reach me is through the quiet mind foundation website, quietmindfdn.org, and the uh, phone number there because I'm old enough that I actually still like talking on the phone instead of texting, um, is 610-940-0488. And I'll be happy to take questions and consult with people over the phone and Zoom. And uh, our office is actually capable of taking people in now because we've got ultraviolet C 
uh, sanitizing for the rooms. And I luckily am COVID negative and am still keeping a high level of antibody titer. So that's good. And uh, hopefully we'll just keep that up. Yeah, I hope so um, too. The neurodegenerative part, I do have, can I make a plug? Oh, absolutely. Uh, we're doing a clinical trial with Texas A&M Department of Neurosurgery using uh, photobiomodulation, a particular frequency of photobiomodulation. And it's a home-based treatment for people with early to mid-stage uh, memory loss. And so we can do the protocol uh, wherever you live because the treatment is done at home by the caregiver and the person. So we send the device to your house and you use it twice a day for six minutes uh, for two months. And we do quantitative EEG wherever you live, and we do neuropsych testing over Zoom. And we've got about five more slots open for this study, and I would be happy to talk to anybody who's got you know, memory issues going on about that study. Awesome. Well, I love the plug, and I think Anyone who's sitting here thinking, well, I'd love to do research on the brain, the quiet mind, quiet mind foundation is awesome. We're working with them as well as psychedelics today on some HPPD research. And I don't know if I'm allowed to say that, but <laughs> I did. So whatever. And, uh, I think, you know, it alludes to, as you bring about COVID, I think maybe you and I will do another episode. We right now have four patients that have recovered from it, have tested positive, And we're seeing a lot of like inflammatory markers and other things in their brain. So maybe someday soon you and I can oh, ab- nerd out on that. Yeah, we're, we're, um, we're close to finishing a paper that, that's going to be published in the British Journal of uh, Pharmacology on photobiomodulation as a treatment for COVID. Beautiful. Any, so any can... sneak peeks or is that, is that uh, hidden until it's published? Oh, uh, I, I think bottom line, you know, everybody should be doing photobiomodulation on their chest. Yeah. Like yesterday. And do you have a, oh man, we're going, here I was thinking we're wrapping up, but you know, there's, there's a lot. So photobiom, let's just take two, what is photobiomodulation and do you have a device recommendation? Cause I know we're, if you have a quick way to break down, there's some stuff like the juve or these other things that can get really expensive and to me seem like they don't have a they, lot of power. Yeah, they really can. I'm working with some people here in, in the Philadelphia area to try and come up with something that could go right over somebody's chest. And uh, Dr. Dougal in the UK is also working with us about trying to figure out a way to use the 1068 nanometer uh, pulsed light to wrap around the chest. So uh, that's one. Uh, Sarah Turner is working with a device called uh, Recharger. And uh, that's, a, that's a device out of Malaysia. So people can call me and I'll, I'll be happy to point them in the right directions about what they can do. But yeah, it's really about getting the LEDs as close to your skin as possible. And so you really can't use lasers because the, the heating up of the tissue is gonna happen too fast. Hmm. So working with LEDs is a safer and more effective way to go. And there are technologies now that are out there that can be used. But the helmet that we've been using is really designed to be a helmet. So 
opening that up and putting it on your chest would be another way to go. And that's what Dr. Dougal's working on. Cool. Oh, I love that idea. Because then you'd have multi-use. So, yeah. all right. Well, before we go another five years worth of <laughs> psychotherapy for everyone, I look forward to reading that paper when it comes out. And uh, absolutely sure we'll be talking soon. Thanks for coming. All right. Back. Thanks, Mike. Uh, it's been fun.